This is Leo from Hannah, Connecticut, and you are listening to WNHHLP 103.5 FM streaming at newhavenindependent.org. Welcome to Book Talk, where we talk about books. I'm Sid Oppenheimer, and today we'll be discussing the novel The Sunlit Night, first with the author, Rebecca Dinerstein, and then with my guests, Annie Toms and Brad Ridke. Set on an island in the Norwegian Sea, in the far north where the sun doesn't set, The Sunlit Night is the story of the unexpected intersection of two lives. Francis is a born and bred New Yorker who has just graduated from college and taken an internship at an arts colony located on this remote island. Yasha, age 17, has come to Norway to fulfill his father's wish to be buried at the top of the world. Both are struggling with what it means to be loved, what it means to be left, what is lost, and what is lasting. I had the opportunity earlier this week to speak with author Rebecca Dinerstein, and I'd like to share that interview with you now. Rebecca Dinerstein has the honor of being the third Rebecca to appear on Book Talk, which means that 14% of the authors I've interviewed are named Rebecca. My oldest daughter's name is also Rebecca, so this feels faded in some way. The particular Rebecca we have with us today went to Stuyvesant High School, my alma mater, and then to Yale University, right here in our very own New Haven. She spent time in Norway after college, and then received her MFA in fiction from NYU. In addition to The Sunlit Night, she has published a collection of poetry in Norwegian and English, Lofoten. Rebecca, thanks so much for joining us today on Book Talk on WNHH 103.5 FM. Thank you so much for having me. So, Rebecca, I like to begin by talking about beginnings. And I wanted to notice to start off with where this book started for you. Did it start with a place or a person, with a question, an image, something else? It's a great question. Um, This book started very much with a character, uh, with the 17-year-old boy, Yasha. Um, he's a, he's a, he's a character I've been writing about for about 10 years now. Um, I wrote a short story about Yasha and his father when I was in my freshman year of college. And I, I fell so in love with their world that when I had the opportunity to travel to Norway after college and I saw how breathtaking the landscape was up there, my first thought was, how can I let Yasha see this place? Um, So it was a combination of character and place. Um, I wanted to bring this family I had been writing about for some time into this new landscape. Um, And that wound up being something of a false start because... um, Yasha needed a lot of support to get there, and it, it didn't go quite as simply as I'd hoped. And that's where all of the other characters in the book and kind of the whole rest of the book arrived from this call for help, kind of, to, to figure out why this Russian boy was suddenly in Norway. Well, I have two questions about that. I guess first I am I was surprised by that answer because um, in some ways, you know, Francis is a character who, at least superficially, resembles the author, right? Young woman, um, just graduated from college, goes off to Norway, all things that are easy enough to find out about your own biography. So I think that I might have anticipated that you would say that the story started with Francis, not with Yasha. So so I'm curious first about at what point you realized that Francis needed to come into the story, but maybe even before we get there, um, starting back with Yasha and and, and the 10 years of writing about him and, and where he first came from for you and why you've been so compelled by him. 
Yeah. Um, you know, I think Yasha is just built of everything I love. It was the first short story I ever wrote. And I thought, well, what would I really enjoy writing about? Bread. Um, this area of southern Brooklyn where my grandmother used to live, Sheepshead Bay. Uh, the piano. I had a I had a Russian piano teacher whose Russianness and pianoness both informed the story. Um, and a certain quality of um, mist and light and atmosphere that I that I really loved and wanted to think about. So everything around Yasha and everything in his world is kind of what's dearest to me. Um, and that's where it all started. And, and I was surprised to find that I felt so much more comfortable writing in um, the mind of a young guy as opposed to um, a more strictly... Uh, autobiographical perspective, which which leads to your second question. Um, Francis really didn't join the book until I had been writing the book for about three years. Um, I had completed an entire draft of the novel that was just about Yasha and his father and his family's quest, had a whole ton of Norse mythology in it, and it was really about the relationships these characters built to the Norse myths. Um, but it ultimately made very little sense, and uh, when I turned that first draft into my workshop, everybody said, look, there's a lot of atmosphere here, there's a lot of beauty, but there's no plot, and there's no story, and there's no drama, and there's, uh, there's not, not, not too much happening here. So can we give Yasha a friend? Can we give him a love interest? Can we give him somebody to talk to? Um, that's where Francis came in. And, and what Francis also did was uh, give me an opportunity to express some of the things I admired about the Norwegian landscape that a 17-year-old Russian boy might not naturally notice, like the wildflowers and the animals, things that um, the Yasha character didn't naturally accommodate, that Francis' character uh, gave some voice to. And how did you find writing Francis's voice? Did it feel easier than Yasha's in some ways because she is, again, superficially closer to you, or was that harder to do? Um... Ultimately, they felt similar because they're both trying to express uh, a certain admiration for the new world they came to. Um, yeah, Francis is absolutely Francis also absolutely follows my journey in terms of plane traffic, but um, nothing of her nothing of her story. Um, is anything I experienced. I never painted a yellow barn and mm -hmm. there never was any Yasha. And, um, <laughs> you know, it's not right. it, for as much as it's my journey, it really wasn't my story. So I, I didn't, I didn't encounter the problem of trying to separate myself from the character because we really were separate. Um, but I, I was more comfortable or I was more experienced with Yasha's voice and writing in the first person was new. And um, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the new dynamic the first person gave to an originally third person story. Can you talk about that a little? Because I was really struck by that, that the book is written in these two different, from these two different perspectives. You have the, the Francis sections in the first person and the Yasha sections in the third person. And you could have brought Francis in and, and brought her in in the third person as well. But, um, but you chose not to do that. Yeah, definitely. I, I did. I tried it always. I tried Francis in the third person. I tried Yasha in the first person. I tried them being the same and I tried them being different. And ultimately, I found that um, 
Yasha's shyness and his um, refusal to uh, think much about or of himself made him an unlikely candidate for the first person. His personality um, didn't uh, ask for a big voice or a big um, first-person charisma that would carry, you know, hundreds of pages of first-person voice. I enjoyed being able to observe Yasha and not asking Yasha to observe or announce himself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so, so the third person always made the most sense for Yasha, but then I did find that the book um, was lacking a kind of immediate energy or a, or an Im- immediate gaze at, at the details of the surroundings. I mean, the scenery is so vibrant in this particular part of the world that I really wanted somebody looking at it in real time and, and, and putting an eye behind it. So I enjoyed ultimately letting Frances um, do some of the more immediate work of noticing the world around her while the world around her noticed the Asha. Having both of those directions moving um, counter to each other, I found really helpful to the book's like total energy um, and, and dynamic. Right. And of course, Frances is an artist, so it absolutely makes sense that she is um, that she is paying such close attention to the to the right. landscape. And right. So I, I actually want to go back again to talking about beginnings, because, you know, you said that um, the book started with Yasha for you. But where the book itself, where the novel begins, is actually mm. with Frances and her college boyfriend, Robert Mason. And um, I'm actually going to go ahead and read the first line. Okay. Oh gosh, Um, how embarrassing. (laughs) Quote, in the moment after Robert Mason's condom broke, he rolled off me, propped himself on his elbow and said, what you do doesn't help anybody. So to me, this was such a striking first sentence because there's a kind of immediacy and even, I don't know, a coarseness to that opening yes. that's really yes. in contrast to what I yes. what I think of as like the poetic delicacy of the rest <laughs> of the book. Um, and so it was really striking to me that you chose to start with a tone that then really shifts throughout the rest of the book. And I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. Well, thank you for feeling the, exactly the way I feel about it. I'm, that sentence absolutely mortifies me. And um, <laughs> it's, it's so frequently read out loud and mentioned. And I just, I'm so bashful about it. And you're exactly right. It's so different. It's so non-representative of the rest of the book. And um, I, frankly, I was really worried about it because it, um, it suggests a kind of, not brazenness, but sassiness. Or, or kind of that is part of the rest of the book. I mean, the rest of the book, if anything. Um, so it, it it really is a false alarm. And, um, you know, my agent loved it because it's, you know, it's a packs a punch. And, and you do, you do to a certain extent need to punch the ice and then, all through it. I mean, it serves a function. And if there's going to be a really saucy sentence, one liner anywhere in the book, it's kind of nice to have it right up front and then let everything settle down. But um, you're right. It's out of, (laughs) it's out of tone with the rest of the book. And um, I, I think at it, if it's doing its job, it creates a kind of tension that the rest of the book can resolve. 
um, and not necessarily continue to participate in. But it does ask the reader's patience in sticking with a book that has the word condom in it. Um, and I mean, not that, sorry, not that the word condom is such a crazy thing, but I've had experiences of, you know, watching mothers with relatively young children in the bookstores um, coming up to get their books signed and, and kind of the awkwardness of whether or not the, the young child is going to be allowed by the mom to read the beginning of the book or not. And, you know, I, I, I would have gladly avoided that. That w- it really was never my intention to, to start off on an R rated note, but it, I do think it serves a purpose and, um, the energy that it sets in motion, I think kind of ripples out through the rest of the book. So, so I let it stay. Well, I mean, I think that, you know, especially what Robert says to Francis, this he says, you know, what you do doesn't help anybody right. to me is almost one of the themes of the book that the book begins to explore this question. Exactly. Of, is, does what she do helps anybody? Does art exactly. help anybody? And it seems like the book is, is, is an exploration of that and his kind of viciousness in that moment. Right. Uh, you know, it's, it's hard to imagine a more vicious moment and a vicious way in which to say this thing. So it definitely serves that function. Um, you know, the, the, the tone is different, but I, it, you know, it kind of sets up the question for the rest of the novel to take on. Mm. That's the hope. So Robert Mason himself, the, the college boyfriend, as you can tell from that first sentence, is um, a jerk. I might use stronger language if we weren't on the radio. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but, you know, he's such a jerk that I, that I started to maybe doubt, um, doubt, Francis's own reliability as a narrator, or, or maybe a better way of mm. saying it is that it it alerts me to the limitations of the first person narrative, because you really realize that when you see the world through one person's eyes, it's really a blinkered view. Right. Um, right. And I just wondered if that was intentional on your part, and if part of you know, much as she helps support Yasha uh, and tell his and let him his story tell through the book, I wonder if having Yasha there gives us that outside perspective on Francis that she provides to him as well. Absolutely. I mean, I think in much of the beginning of the book, Francis is a bystander to Robert's personality and to her parents' personalities and to her sister's marriage and to her parents' divorce and things that affect her, but that she is not creating or initiating. And having Yasha there to see her and to ask things of her and to meet her in new ways creates her character in a way that um, her previous life really didn't allow for. Um, Let's talk a little bit, too, about um, Nils. So Nils is the artist with whom Francis has come to Norway in order to work. And he's working on a project called The Yellow Room, which involves painting a barn uh, in what Francis calls a patchwork yellow mural. They live together in this artist's colony. They're the only two occupants, and they work together all day and every day. And when the project's finished, when Nils leaves to go home, Francis says of him, I had assumed, I think, that when someone as unlikely as Nils came into one's life, he stayed. We would know each other, remember each other anywhere. And it becomes clear at the moment of his leaving that he's very important to Francis, but I felt like there was not a lot of him in the story. He's very muted as a character, and I wondered if you had written him more of him and had pruned him back or if he was always kind of a cipher 
Nelson's silence and his absence, I think, is actually the core of the book. Um, I, I certainly had never written more of him that I deleted. His presence is kind of essential um, and, and almost um, invisible. And something of that modesty and that um, uh, not silence, but um, a refusal to be too available, um, I think really sets the stage for all of the action and dialogue that the other characters um, take on and uh, use to assert themselves. Nils is kind of this very uh, patient and constant background that I think really allows the whole rest of the book to take place. Um, so I think if, if we had seen much more of him, um, things would have started to feel very crowded. I think it's, it's actually his graciousness and his gracefulness and, and step and staying behind the scenes that allows what's on stage to, um, go on. Let's talk a little bit too about, um, about Francis's family. Um, on our last show, we had on Janine Capo Crusette. Uh, talking about her book, Make Your Home Among Strangers. It's a very different book than yours, but it similarly features a family that is in, in some ways, crisis. Um, and where everyone involved, the mother and the father and both of the daughters, do and say some terrible things, and they hurt each other in some terrible ways. Um, and in our conversation, it was really interesting because Janine talked about how people have responded to the book and have said, you know, oh, this family is so awful. Can you believe the things they do? And how she was surprised by that. And her reaction is she really didn't see them as so awful. She just sees them as a family going through a really hard year. Right. And maybe wonder how you, what you would have to say about Francis's family here. Um, yeah, I sympathize with that because um, when you take the risk of portraying the family in any kind of moment of change or conflict or confusion. Um, first of all, you always run the risk of the family being interpreted as your own. And second of all, um, you run the risk of damning them or, or somehow humiliating or insulting them. And um, it's, it's, I don't think it's ever the author's intention to humiliate his or her characters. Um, and, uh, the the intentions of the readers can be complicated and sometimes crueler than uh, expected. So I I know that feeling of wanting to defend one's characters against this kind of accusation of them being of their being bad somehow. Um, Francis's family, I think, much as Janine said, Janine and I read it together at the Miami Book Fair, and I think I felt a lot, a lot of things in common. Um, as Janine said. Uh, is, is figuring itself out and in this moment of confusion is allowing some of um, the worst personality traits to exercise themselves. Um, but I think the trajectory of, of Francis's family and how they all find themselves at the end and what transformations actually occur and what things wind up actually staying still um, is, is a major uh, story of growth and um, understanding. So in the end, I, I feel pretty certain that it's, um, that the characters are not done wrong by, even as they're displayed in their most hectic selves. You know, I, um, 
I wanted to talk, speaking of endings and, and where the characters have gone uh, and, and the ways that they've grown, we've talked a lot on this show um, about epilogues. I've talked a lot with authors about when they've made a choice to write an epilogue and when they've made a choice not to. Um, you don't have an epilogue, but you have what you call a chapter called a coda. And I wonder if you could talk first about whether you see a difference between a coda and an epilogue. Um, and then second, about what you chose to tell us in the coda and what things you decided to leave silent. Hmm. Uh, it's a nice question. The coda means so much to me. Um, and the choice of the word coda uh, is something of a nod to the musical structure of a coda, which is um, in my understanding, a lighter touch or a lighter addition than an epilogue. Um, an epilogue to me feels more like a, a section, of, a, a substantial uh, section of a book, whereas the coda, a coda to me feels more like a, a touch or a gentle chime. Um, it doesn't feel like its own body. It doesn't feel like a chapter equivalent to the chapters of the book. It feels um, somehow uh, thinner and um, less insistent, more kind of atmospheric and for the sake of resonance rather than um, substance. And in that regard, it was important to me to just ring a few bells or hit a few notes that um, had gone kind of unresolved in the, you know, uh, to take this metaphor too far, the chord progression of the book, um, the notes that I felt were hanging uh, just needed to be played again or, or altered slightly. And, and those were the things that wound up appearing in the coda. Um, and I, I was grateful that that structure allowed me to paint certain pictures very lightly and quickly um, as opposed to uh, making too much of them. I was grateful for the opportunity to show the reader one glimpse of this landscape in winter without there being a winter chapter. Um, and I was grateful for the opportunity to look once more at the family characters and, and, and just get glimpses of where they go without really spending time with them there. Um, so, so I like the lightness of the coda and, and how... Um, shimmering, it felt. And, and maybe most specifically, I'm interested that there's kind of an intimation that in some way, Francis and Yasha's relationship, whatever in whatever form, continues, but it's left very open as to what that might be. Yeah. And um, I, I can't imagine another structure that would have allowed for both that intimation and that open-endedness. Um, both of which were important to me to communicate because um, having it being completely unknown felt uh, too mysterious, but having it over-articulated um, felt heavy-handed. So uh, it was important to me to, to give just, a, just enough information to let the reader take it forward. Well, we started with beginnings, and it seems fitting to end with endings, so that seems like a good place to stop. Mm -hmm. um, Rebecca, it's been great talking with you. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much, sir. It was really lovely to talk to you. I'm Sid Oppenheimer, and this is Book Talk on WNHH 103.5 FM.
I want to take a moment to introduce my guests, Annie Toms and Brad Ridke. Annie Toms is also an alma mater of mine at Rebecca's High School and is now an English teacher there and actually taught Rebecca Dinerstein back before she was a published author. I'm sure Rebecca owes all of her success to her. Brad Ridke is a high school English teacher here in New Haven. Brad and Annie, I'm so glad to have you both bring your English teachery insights to Book Talk today. I wanted to start by talking about something Rebecca said in the interview. She said that one of the things that drew her to Yasha, one of the things that she loved and that Yasha uh, encapsulated for her was this love of bread. And I wondered if we could start by talking about bread. Yasha's father owns a bakery, the Gregoriev Bakery in, uh, in Sheepshead Bay. And I wonder on what level bread functions as a metaphor for some things in this novel. I guess first about the wholesomeness idea, not to be punny, but the sense that it does seem like such an important facet of the story for, uh, for Yasha, obviously for his father. There's some carryover from Russia, right? There's the Gregoriev Bakery there. Uh, so we get a second iteration um, in, in New York. Um, and then also maybe about, maybe too about this... Um, question of, of uh, things that, again, it sounds so, so overly punny, but things that rise. Um, we have this period of, of waiting, right? I was, I was thinking of a kind of stasis um, where we catch these characters largely in transition, at least for Yasha and, and Francis. They both have just finished some version of school, um, Yasha High School and Francis College, and now they're, we're, just, we're waiting for them to rise into something else. Um, so I don't know how intentional yeah, that was. Yeah, rise or kind of a transformation. Mm. I was also thinking about bread as an art or bread making as an art, um, that it requires expertise and that it, it's something that is both, can be both artistic and can be nourishing, um, that it is something ephemeral, but that it has a real purpose. And I was thinking about this in in uh, the context of the larger question that um, that Francis poses very early in the book that Becky Dinerstein poses very early in the book um, about what the purpose of art is um, about you know Francis's father says to her what does it matter if you do what you love if what you love doesn't matter and about what um, about what matters in terms of the kinds of work that we do. And when you think about bread making and you think about Vesely making bread, that, that work matters in that it feeds people. And I think that while um, Yasha and Francis don't open a bread making shop together, which I think would be a, a lovely um, later life for them maybe, uh, they, they do take part in the making of food in uh, in the sort of Viking museum um, for tourists. So they do take part in, in the creation of these great feasts and they do compare that to, um, to bread making. And, and so there is a kind of a, a way that the idea of nourishing people through the creation of your own hands plays a, a large role for both of them. Well, I found myself thinking about that classic Raymond Carver story, A Small Good Thing, where uh, which is set partly in a bakery and the 
there's been an order placed for a, a birthday cake and it never gets picked up and the baker is so irate and ultimately the parents come to the bakery or he keeps calling them I think it is I haven't read it in a long time and he ultimately learns that the child for whom the cake was ordered has been killed and uh, and he try, and he then there's this beautiful beautiful scene at the very end of the story where he he feeds the parents and he gives them these warm rolls fresh from the oven and he and he says you know Bread is a, a small good thing in a time like this. And to me, that was, it kind of set up this idea of it, you know, within the sunlit night, um, the idea that bread is presented kind of in contrast to art in that it is something so concrete and real and can provide nourishment in a way that it's not clear whether art can. Um, so so do you think it's set up as that contrast or or do you feel like they are both presented as analogous or parallels that they can both do that nourishing. I mean, I said in the interview with Rebecca, I feel like, you know, that question or that statement that Robert Mason makes at the beginning, you know, what you do doesn't help anybody is, is kind of the guiding force of the novel asking the question, like, does what she do helps anybody? Can art help anybody? Can painting a barn yellow and in a remote island in Norway, does that do anything? How do you think the novel answers that question or does it answer it? I, I think that Francis says that art can help somebody, that art can help people. I think that she believes that on some level, but I think that in her own experience, we don't really see that play out for her. I was thinking a lot about this and, you know, she, she says on, on 218, she's talking about her father again, her father who began as an artist, but he, he, um, well, he began starting to, to get into medicine and then he discovered that he loved drawing and then he becomes a medical illustrator. And so his work is incredibly beautiful and sort of useful, but not really consulted by many people. And so she's talking about sort of the use and the worth of that kind of work. Um, and, she says, uh, if I'm lucky enough, I thought someday to make a painting for the cover of a toy helicopter user's manual, I will not be outraged because the painting is the thing itself, the fulfilling thing. And so there you have a, an idea of art as something where the, the creation, the process of making the art and the art itself then are the the important thing, the fulfilling thing. I think that that goes along with the idea of the yellow room of of making this this huge thing that is beautiful and not doesn't necessarily need to be useful except as beauty. Um, but at the same time, she, you know, she says that and she puts that out there, but we never see her paint really. Um, and at the point where after when she's sort of with Yasha and then like kind of not sleeping with him anymore and it's not really clear what's going on with him towards the very end. She wants to paint, but she's run out of paint. So we don't see that fulfillment that she talks about actually happen for her. And so I'm not sure what the book is saying about it overall. Yeah, I would, I would agree with you, Annie. I think those are great points. And also it, it makes me think about, um, I think it's, is it Siegbjorn's or I forget who made the um, cheese goat right underneath the Haldor. tree. It's Haldor. It's yeah. Haldor. Haldor. Yes. Thank you. Um, who he says at some point, oh, I never thought anyone would see that, right? When when Yasha finds it first, and then is very excited to. Uh, I don't know if it's so much for the cheese goat as, as for the dark space where they can be alone, but um, <laughs> <laughs> very excited to show Francis, and he's created this thing clearly for himself that he doesn't imagine anyone else will see, and we get another iteration of that 
at the end in, in Francis's father's um, kind of drunken toast that he gives at the wedding. And um, he, he talks about his career. And then we later learn that he's been, I guess, sketching or painting his wife, Francis's mother, right? He's kind of put, we think his career's over as a medical illustrator, but he has turned his attention to something. I, and I'm not exactly sure if we're, I, I felt like we're meant to see that as more meaningful, although even less um, observed than his medical illustrations, right? Just as these quiet um, kind of concentrations on, on his wife. Mm. And I did, I did want to say, I, I thought that that cheese goat um, was sort of a, an interesting combination of creation of art and creation of food. You yeah, know, absolutely. That, that it, right. That, and, and it's something that it is, it's not really for an audience, although that then it does gain this audience and that it, um, and that it's ephemeral. I mean, it's going to take a while for the brown cheese to, to rot, but, but eventually right. it, it will, it will decompose. Well, I, I also, I want to turn back to what Brad said about Francis's father. Um, I thought it was interesting, the progression of the parents in the novel. And I'm curious to know what the two of you made of it. You know, when the novel begins, the whole family, Francis, her sister, the parents are all on top of each other in this little apartment. And then they, they splinter. They, they go their separate ways. Frances goes to Norway and her sister announces that she's going to be married and her parents, she's, she's only a junior in college. Her parents disapprove both because they feel she's too long, young, but also because they hate her boyfriend. Um, and they feel he's very different from the rest of the family. So it feels like a real rejection of the family. And then they announce that they are going to get divorced. And they make moves towards getting divorced. They clear out the whole apartment. And then once the apartment is cleared out, they don't leave. They stay. And it's, and she, she describes it as they kind of squat in this empty apartment. And in the coda, we have them still together in this empty apartment. And the father has made these three sketches of her mother's face. And they are pinned up on the wall. And they continue to eat only the few things they eat. The mother, her applesauce, and the father, his ketchup. But they share it. Um, and they're still together. And it, it felt like that was intended to be movement or progression or growth. Um, and yet it also felt to me like inertia. And I feel like she sets those two things up um, in contrast in the book. You know, at one point towards the end, she says, um, she says, love and geography, I'm not quoting exactly here, but love and geography are the same thing. They're both about, here it is. Love and geography had become synonyms, both meaning move across a great space. And so that seems in direct contrast to the idea of inertia. And yet um, her parents are in the exact same space they were in before. So is that movement across a great space or is it the opposite? Well, it makes me think too of, of Yasha's response, right? He's at, at some point has a few lines, you know, when he decides not to go to Geneva with his, his, his wife, his, his, mother. Sorry, his mother and Ian. Um, and he, we get the sense that he's sort of tired of moving, right? He's, he's come from Russia and then, and then back to Russia and then to Norway with his father's body. And his, his great response to all this is to just stay on the island. Like, I'm just, I'm just going to be here for a while. And that's going to be, in some sense, a kind of, um, you know, he's literally staying, but it is, it is a progression. It's a kind of movement for him because it's away from all of the movement that he's come from. 
and it's a kind of picking, you know, you, you reference the father's speech at the, at the wedding, you know, in his drunkenness, he doesn't really make a very loving speech, but he does say that, you know, what Sarah Francis's sister is doing is she is picking something and most people don't do that in their lives and whether or not it is, it will turn out to be the right pick. Um, there is a kind of bravery in having done that. And I feel like that is what Yasha is doing too up until now Everything has been picked for him. And this is where he says, I will, I will pick. It's curious then, right? Because Francis's parents don't seem to choose to stay together. They just kind of fall into, uh, fall into that. He, uh, unless we are to assume from his, from his toast that he has in some way um, chosen. I mean, I guess any non-decision is also a decision, right? But <laughs> By not completing the act of the divorce and moving out, they are by default choosing. But to I do stay think together. there's a difference. I think there's a difference between. I think he says in that toast that there is a difference between the default and and the active act of choice. That's and right. you're, and I do think we don't see them making that active choice. Well, it, that's interesting. If you think about that, this question of active choice and picking in terms of Yasha's parents as well, where Francis's parents stay together, Yasha's parents have been separated for ten years, but without an official choosing, without any kind of like, Oliana never says, I'm leaving you. She never says, I'm in love with somebody else. I mean, for 10 years, she doesn't say that. She just says, oh, you know, I'm staying in Russia um, and, and I'll, I'll be there soon. You know, I'll come to America with you soon. And so there's a, a kind of an unspoken choice that she makes, which we later learn she made a choice 10 years before, but she didn't actually um, express that choice. And so there, there's a kind of a limbo that, that Yasha and Vasily are put into because they don't understand the choice that has been made about them. And, and so I, I think that, that that sort of also plays into the attractiveness of the idea of, of making a conscious choice, making a clear choice. But what I thought was interesting was that in some ways, Sarah is the person who most clearly makes a choice. She clearly picks her boyfriend. She clearly chooses to reject her family and the things that they stand for and embrace this family that's very different than her own. And yet one of the few things that we learn in the coda is that that choice fails her, that within a couple of years, she and her husband end up getting divorced. He leaves her. Um, and so I was curious, I was really interested in that, you know, of the we don't learn a whole lot about what happens down the line, but we do learn that. And so what are we to take away from that? I thought that was curious too, Sid. In, in, um, I guess the, I'm thinking again about Francis and Yasha as both kind of being the, the recipients of experiences, right? They've, they've gone through these programmatic educational experiences of high school and college, and then she kind of by default ends up on this island. She had made a decision to go there and then was not going to go because she was going to be with Robert, and then that ends out of her control. And so she kind of manages to finagle the internship again. Um, but it's very much the, the recipient, I felt like a lot of the times, um, and not so much um, an actor, or, or, or she doesn't seem to have a lot of agency. We can see that maybe in, in her relationship with Niels, like there's the opportunity for something there, but she just kind of waits for it to grow into something with Niels that then doesn't. Um, and Yasha... Not, not, it's not his fault, right? But he too um, is kind of the recipient of a lot of action. So we don't get to see them 
do a whole lot or exhibit their own agency until much later in the novel. And I wonder how, to what extent that's a part of, of the growing up process, right? Do we see them now, finally, at the end, are they kind of making decisions for themselves and doing things um, that represent in some other way a kind of adulthood? Mm, I, I really like that, Brad. And and um, very early on, Frances, Frances describes um, her previous travels. She says on page 19, throughout college during the summers, I would find ways for the university to send me somewhere, wherever they were sending people. I went with a small suitcase to stare intensely at the livestock, Irish sheep, English sheep, paint the animals, and find somebody with a funny foreign name to make love to on a foreign kitchen floor before coming home to my parents' empty refrigerator. And so she sort of gives us this frame for the experience that she has had. And of course, that's that. in one way, you could say that, that that's actually the experience she has in Norway, too. You know, she goes to Norway and she looks at this uh, boar outside the window, and Yasha's real name is Yakov Vasilyevich Grigoryev, right? And so there's your funny foreign name. Um, and and so we're getting that image, which which I think speaks to that sort of passive experience. But on the other hand, there's this. Um, she there there are these references to Norse mythology and to the end of the world, and then what happens after the end of the world. Which is one of my favorite things about Norse mythology is that there's an end of the world, and then everything continues past it. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, right. That that it that the end of the world is not the end of life. And, and, um, I was thinking, you know, at, at Vesely's burial at his little funeral service that Haldor runs when they're out on the beach at the very end of the world, Haldor says to Oliana, I can assure you that the world begins again after the end of the world. Two people survive and their children fill the new world. So says the great saga, the Edda, in its very first section. We bury your husband tonight under the midnight sun to show it is not the end, to show there is light even in a time of darkness. And so I... I I think you can also read both Francis and Yasha's stories as these grand metaphorical, like they are the two people who have come together at the edge of the world after the end of the world. You know, Yasha's world has ended because his father has died and Francis's world has ended because her parents are, are splitting up and her family is dissolving. And and then they are going to go on and repeople the world and maybe, you know, come back to New York together and start this new life. Um, and I thought it was interesting, you know, going back to what you were saying, said about the coda, that we don't get an image of Francis and Yasha together in New York at the end. So, so there's this implication that perhaps they are going to go and repeople the world, but we don't actually see that happen. We see them still sort of in process of working out who they are individually and who they might be to each other. Yeah, I, I um, one of the lines that you didn't quote from the uh, from the funeral, which comes shortly after the part you did quote, um, is where he says, "Vasily's ending is another one of these endings that can mean beginnings after," and mm-hmm. I felt like that too spoke to the novel, and even gets back to you know what I was saying about Sarah and her ultimate marriage ending, is because to me it did not feel, even though you could read it as kind of a rejection of Sarah's decision of saying, "Look, she was wrong all along; she never should have picked this." and this man and and left college and left her family it didn't it didn't feel presented to me in that way and instead i think a a more accurate way to, way to read it is that things sometimes do have endings and that those endings can be all right because there are they they give rise to new beginnings and that maybe that's part of this coming coming of age realization 
that Yasha and Francis both come to in the course of this novel, which is um, which is that that you need endings in order to start the next chapter. There's also um, I'm thinking about that in terms of the recreative aspects that are in the novel. Um, you know, they're at this museum that recreates a moment from I don't know a thousand years ago in Viking history. Um, the sort of the, the the doubling of the bread bakeries, um, the interchangeability to some extent of some of these characters. Um, there are you know, the, the Yasha's two fathers, in a sense, where Ian steps in when his own father dies. Um, and to what extent um, the, those endings and the beginnings are largely out of our control, but also kind of cyclical in keeping maybe any with that Norse mythology idea that you know, the ending becomes the beginning or, or makes way for the new beginning. Um, I think we, we do get a lot of those iterations that that just kind of, well, they happen again and again, right? Every summer, people come to this museum and we relive what apparently had been on this island for a thousand years or more. Right, and, 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 and even the time progression in the novel seems to suggest that cyclical nature kind of moves through the summer season and gets to the winter season and you have a sense of like time moving in that circle. And there's that funny moment when, when um, Frances is uh, Skyping with her parents and her mother sees Yasha and says you, you should marry my daughter, right? And there's this kind of tension. She's thinking of Sarah. He should marry Sarah, but then, right? It's, all, there's it's kind, a kind of like of, a Leia and Rebecca right, biblical right, moment, right, yeah, right? Exactly. But there's this interchangeability for a moment um, that you know, he, he could do for either one of them. Mm-hmm. And and getting into that that idea of the cyclical nature of everything, just the whole, the, going back to the idea of light making and light keeping, you know, that, that Francis says at the very beginning, that's what I needed, I thought, a lesson in either light making or light keeping. And so when she goes to Norway, you know, you have at first the, this total light, this night that where the sun never sets and you have this huge, huge, huge amount of light. And then as the story is going on, the days start to get a little bit shorter and the sun finally does set. And then in Yasha's description, um, when he stays through the winter, there's almost no light at all. And so there's this movement from wanting this enormous, enormous, enormous amount of light. um, And maybe the yellow room is a way to encapsulate that in some way to kind of hold on to light. And then wanting something different. And Francis says near the end, I looked at Yasha and I did not want to pass lightly. I did not want any more light. And so then, you know, obviously she's playing there with light, not just like sunlight, but light as opposed to weight, as as opposed to, to heaviness. Um, and, and that she kind of, maybe the, the, that her desire for that light was also a desire for lightness. And now she's grown more and wants something that has more heft, something that has more weight. Yeah, we get that from the beginning, right? She shows up at this place with no night. And it's, I think, almost right from the start, it's she's seeking out darkness, right? It's like you can't mm-hmm. you can't pull the shades tight enough and there's just nowhere to retreat from all this light. And he finally, you know, Yasha finally finds that, that basement area with the, with the cheese goat. And that, that part of what's so exciting is you can actually find sort of pure darkness there in a way that they seem to have not been able to for the rest of the novel. And so why do you think they want or need that darkness? I mean, you think about light and light has all of these positive connotations to it. And there's a sense in which, you know, the endless, the endless day 
it suggests a certain kind of exposure, um, but also a kind of purity. Like there are no secrets. There's nothing hidden. And again, that seems like that should be desired. So why, why the need for darkness? It makes me think of, I, I think uh, on the stage or in film, there's this idea that, you know, lighting is not just about what you're casting light on, what you're trying to exhibit, but also what you are choosing to keep in shadow, what you are choosing to keep away. And so I don't, um, wonder maybe in, in the quest for identity and, and for self and for also kind of togetherness for Yasha and Francis, what they um, don't necessarily want exposed or what you can find in shadow that you can't find in glaring light. Mm. And, and also, if, if the sun never goes down, you never have the end of the day that's like the end of the world that leads to a new beginning. Like there, yeah. there can't be a new beginning Unless you have an ending, right? In right. in some way, and and we need to have an ending too. So that seems like a good moment to end on, Annie and Brad. As ever, it's been great talking with you. It was a treat, Sid. Thank you. Thanks, Annie. It's such a pleasure. I'm Sid Oppenheimer, and this is Book Talk on WNHH 103.5 FM. <laughs>